Every year since 1965, we've gathered round our TV sets to watch people from across Europe prance across a screen in order to win a singing competition. But just why are the Irish so obsessed with Eurovision? Let me explain. Let me explain with Sean Defoe, a News Talk original. Welcome to Let Me Explain with Sean Defoe, a News Talk original podcast, taking a look at one of the big stories dominating the airwaves each week. Please hit the subscribe button to catch new episodes every Thursday. And if you like the pod, leave a review with douspoir or as many stars as you can give. This week, it's Eurovision, baby. My Eurovision anniversary was April 30th, so... You know, and my birthday is the 13th of May. So Eurovision is always around that time. So it's a weird one. It's always kind of like, it's, it's like a second birthday every year. This is Paul Harrington, and you might remember him. We were the rock and roll kids. Along with Charlie McGettigan, he won Eurovision in 1994 with Rock and Roll Kids. And Paul Harrington says to really understand our Eurovision obsession, we need to go back to the one-channel TV landscape we used to have. So here's the thing, 1963... Um, JFK is assassinated so we had a black and white Murphy television set with rabbit's ears and all that sort of thing and uh, I know that sounds like 500 years ago but you know so this is on the television you know don't forget that was huge news then 1969 you had the moon landing so that was huge news you know and uh, you're, you're watching this scratchy sound and, and pictures on the television on New Year's Eve 1961, President Eamon de Valera said he was privileged but somewhat afraid as he made the first ever broadcast on RTE television. He even compared TV and radio to atomic energy, saying they could do incalculable good and incalculable bad. Four years later, Butch Moore became Ireland's first Eurovision entry with I'm Walking the Streets in the Rain. He finished sixth in the 1965 contest in Naples, in which a then-record 18 countries took part. And our record in the early years was actually pretty good. We placed sixth, fourth, second, fourth and seventh. And then came 1970. And in 1970, Dana wins the Eurovision for Ireland. You know, I mean, that's that's was huge. So we're one channel land. Whatever was on the TV at the time, you know, these were you know newsflash stuff, and this was big televisual events. So I suppose it's not that I didn't know the difference between an assassination and somebody singing a song on a stool. Um, but at nine years of age, a big event, like in other words, it spilled into the house. For 18-year-old schoolgirl Dana and her producer Tom McGrath, the win was a surprise. Ireland was kind of the bridesmaid and nobody thought Ireland would win. Surrounded by photographers, I'd never seen so many flash bulbs before. Every time I closed my eyes, I had like a negative, like a flash bulb uh, going through my head. But... I was swept off the stage with surrounded with photographers and leaning against the wall at the back of the stage, piping the mouth as usual, was Tom McGrath. And he always used to call me Rosie Mary. And they said, uh, Rosie Mary, how dare you win? We can't afford it. Dana won with just 32 points, which is something that seems totally mad now when you need hundreds and hundreds of points to win. And there were only 12 entrants in Amsterdam because of a voting scandal the year before. 
In Madrid in 1969, four countries tied with 18 points apiece. And it was such early days, they actually had no system and no protocol in place for what would happen if there was a tie. And so they named France, the Netherlands, Spain and the UK joint winners. And they had four medals, which were meant to be for the winning act and three writers. And instead, they had to give one to each country and then draw lots to see who would actually host next year's competition. And then as a result, Finland, Norway, Sweden and Portugal boycotted the 1970 song contest. Test. Interestingly, Ireland's first time hosting at the Gaiety Theatre in 1971 was the first time that groups of up to six people were allowed, which really changed the Eurovision game. There is one important thing. We won, obviously, a record number of times. Former Eurovision presenter and commentator Pat Kenny. But we were singing in English, as was Malta, as was the UK, and English is the language of international pop music. So we had a huge advantage over the years, which led to our... Uh, wins, as well as, of course, the excellence of the songs. Now, after a change of rule, everyone's allowed to sing in English, and many of them do, and that has levelled the playing field. For most of Eurovision's history, there was a rule in place stating that the entrants had to sing in their own national language, yet interestingly, only once did we actually use that stipulation to send a song Osgwelga. <laughs> Sandy Jones from Edinburgh in 1972, where she finished 15th. Plenty happened in that decade, including a bizarre Eurovision in Brighton in 1974, where the French pulled out after President George Pompidou died. Olivia Newton-John represented the UK years before she starred in Greece, and ABBA shot to their own stardom, winning with Waterloo. But for Ireland, we were in something of a drought, at least by the standards of that time. That is until 1980. Diana started the ball rolling and then Johnny Logan kind of heartthrob came along, continued the whole thing. And that's probably when the you know, Eurovision obsession started. Logan won with 143 votes in the first contest to feature an African country in Morocco, which meant another chance for Ireland to host the contest. Gaelic, welcome to Dublin and the 1981 Grand Prix of the Eurovision Song Contest. And the opening montage of our hosting in 1981 showed old Ireland merging into new Ireland, set to Terry Wogan's voice. Ireland, of course, is the land of the horse. And Wogan to win it did not win the Grand National, I'm afraid. The growth of Ireland is something that Pat Kenny actually thinks is quite important to understanding our Eurovision obsession. I think it was the first hint that we could be true Europeans. You know, before the EU and all the rest of it, uh, we had been seen as, uh, you know, Britain's little brother or whatever, uh, very much on the western fringes of Europe and suddenly we're part of the whole thing. We're going to, to Rome, we're going to all these exotic places and we began to feel, yeah, we're European. Meanwhile, Johnny Logan not content with just the one Eurovision win. That's actually my personal favourite uh, Irish winner, even if many kids now may know that more for the Eurosaver menu than the actual Eurovision. The RDS in 1988, the following year, saw Michelle Rocca and one Patrick Kenny hosting the Eurovision. I can't say that I was not terrified before it, <laughs> but um, as soon as the red light went on, I just chilled absolutely chilled and it was a it was a ball to do it from start to finish and as hosts we've had plenty of drama too including Celine Dion of all people kickstarting her career with a last second win in Dublin 
at the end of it, and uh, you might remember that Celine Dion uh, won it, but the uh, UK were neck and neck. And uh, I think I made some reference that Agatha Christie couldn't have written the script. Well, I have to tell you that um, we employed Agatha Christie to write the script for tonight. <laughs> and that got a big laugh. Um, so uh, I remember it as, you know, one of those moments in my broadcasting career when I felt, along with Michelle, that I had literally everything under control. And that time started an unprecedented run of success for Ireland in the Eurovision. Johnny Logan's win in 87 was followed by Linda Martin in Malmo in 92, Neve Kavanagh in Mill Street in 93, and Paul Harrington and Charlie McGettigan then in 94, while Emer Quinn made it four in five years in Oslo in 96 to win Ireland's record seventh Eurovision. First to win three in a row, you know, that was, that was mad. You know, that was a mad, mad time. Uh, and, and again, the 90s, particularly, you know, 1994, um, to me, you know, that was the, that was the night Riverdance was born, um, and I also felt it was the it was the real kickstart of the whole Celtic Tiger thing as well, you know. So I think it, it fed into that too. It got to the point where people were wondering: Is RTE going to start throwing the contest just to avoid spending the money to host it? Right. My lovely horse running through the field Where are you going with your fetlocks blowing in the wind? It got to the point where in the 90s there were calls for the contest to be moved to Derry or to Belfast, in part to foster North-South relations at a really difficult time for North-South relations, but also so that the cost could be split with the BBC, who have stepped in multiple times to host when other nations either couldn't or wouldn't. But since the last win in 96, it's been a bit barren. Mark Roberts actually placed second in Dublin in 97, and our highest finish since then, Jedward in 2011. Greetings, Sean, from the streets of Turin. Why are we so obsessed with Eurovision? I think it's because we've won it at seven times. Our own Henry McKean is in Italy for this year's contest. I got to go to Dusseldorf where Jedward uh, reached eighth place uh, back in 2011 and I went on the Jed plane and you could see when you were sitting on the Jed plane you could see Jedward's hair sticking up over the seats. So what Henry keeps us coming back year after year? I suppose the love of music and the politics. I mean this really is one big massive EU uh, but through music. And the politics is huge maybe this year more than any and of course we always give out about the voting blocks, particularly the Eastern European voting blocks. Ah, should they all vote for each other? And then we delight in the UK giving us 12 points while we give them uh, we usually nothing back. But given that we haven't won it in ages or even really came close in ages and it's changed so much with the semi-finals in place and quite often Ireland not even qualifying for the actual grand final, why are we still so obsessed? What keeps me interested in going back every year? FOMO. This is superfan Garrett Mulhall. Pure, unadulterated FOMO. Fear of missing out on like what's going to be the next biggest thing or that not being able to get involved in that water cooler moment at work. God, did you see that Albanian woman last night swinging her hair around like a washing machine? Or did you see the bearded lady from Austria singing? You don't want to miss out on those classic Eurovision moments that sort of everybody is always talking about. 40 countries are taking part this year, 26 in the grand final, including countries that are famously not in Europe. And I'm looking at you, Australia. We 
obviously live in a very different world to the mono-channel entertainment available when the competition started. So how is it actually that Eurovision has managed to stay relevant through all that? If you think about it, they've got a project which is all about fashion, all about music, all about entertainment. And the EBU has made a very good decision to actually go into the whole realm of social media. This year, for the first time ever, they didn't allow uh, journalists to go in and look at the first rehearsals for all the countries. Instead, what they did was they partnered up with TikTok and released 60-second TikTok clicks. That absolutely went viral around the world for the first time for rehearsals. So I think that's why it's actually going to continue to be relevant going forward. And there's a bit of an element now of it expanding into a worldwide song contest. Canada, for example, is going to join Eurovision next year. And this year, they held the American Song Contest for the first time, with contestants from across the 50 states, hosted by Kelly Clarkson and Snoop Dogg. Every great song has its own kind of vibe. So an obsession that was born out of really strong success is living on through the increasingly wacky, showy and always drama-filled Eurovision. And you might say you've no interest and you're only sticking it on for five minutes on Saturday because there's nothing else on, sure. Just know that when you're three glasses of wine in and thinking about reaching for a gin and tonic while criticising the coordination of the Moldovan backing dancers, know you're fully embracing that annual Irish obsession that is Eurovision. So that's the story with Eurovision. No mention of Brooke Scullion simply because by the time you're listening into this, she could have performed and could be in or out, out of the semi-final, into the final. We, we just don't know. We're recording before the semi-final here, so best of luck to her. I'm sure you'll be able to find me live tweeting the show on Twitter on Saturday. And if you're not a member of the Twitterati, I'll be back with another edition of Let Me Explain next Thursday. The podcast was researched, written and recorded by myself, Sean Defoe, with John Kyo's editorial eye and Lachlan Hart on the audio production side. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll chat next week.